You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. But as Reed said, we're going to be continuing in our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, But before we do, um, the text that we just read, we saw that Jesus healed these blind men who were in this uh, pitiful situation. It says that he had pity on them and they were healed. And it made me think of a story of when I was a kid. And if you know me at all, you won't be surprised to know that this story has to do with baseball. And so when I was a kid, I had an older sister, but I was a baseball fanatic. And so I did what was virtually impossible, which was every day I would go into my backyard and I would play baseball by myself. Um, And so imagine little eight-year-old redneck boy with a buzz cut, no shirt on, no shoes, just wearing shorts that don't quite fit. And I would go into my backyard with a ball and a bat, and I would throw the ball up, and I would try to hit the ball over the fence, which stood about 75 to 100 feet away, depending on how close I was to the pecan tree, which served as home plate in my backyard. And, And so this is what I would do every day. And it was always... The situation was always the same. I was always the shortstop for the St. Louis Cardinals. The bases were always loaded. We were always down by three runs, and it was always the bottom of the ninth and the seventh game of the World Series. And so one day, I did the incredible, and I hit an 82-foot game-winning grand slam, and the Cardinals won it all. And so I did what any little redneck boy with no shoes and no shirt on would do, and I walked through my backyard into the alley, and in the town that I grew up in, it wasn't like the city alleys that are paved with big garbage cans and like enough room for like a grandma to drive through with her town car. It was like just some grass that kind of had two lanes knocked down from a truck that drove through about six months ago. And so I walked out there barefoot, and I don't remember if I ever found the baseball, but I do remember stepping into a fresh patch with both feet of sticker burrs or goat heads or or whatever you called them. And so here I was, eight years old, with somewhere between 75 and 475 sticker burrs in the bottom of my feet. And I quickly realized not only was this excruciating, but there was no way I could fix it on my own. Because if I were to lift one foot, I would put too much weight on the other and it would be overwhelming. And so I did what any eight-year-old boy in such a pitiful situation would do, and I screamed over and over and over, help me, help me, help me. And my custom was playing baseball in the backyard, but my mom's custom was cooking dinner, listening to Stevie Ray Vaughan really loud, and so she couldn't hear me crying for help. Uh, So I stood there, and I just kept screaming. Eventually, someone would hear me, and they did. Uh, A couple men who lived on my street were congregated in their front yard talking, and they heard me, and they came over, and they picked me up, and they had pity on me, and they carried me to my front porch, and they picked all the sticker burrs out of my feet, and I was saved. Um, and it was, it was great, but what, hap- what had to happen for me to be in this situation of being saved was I had to allow myself to be pitiful, to be the object of pity. I had to humble myself to scream for help, which as like a proud little like World Series champion, that was kind of hard to do. Um, but I had to do it. Otherwise, there would be no help for me. Um, and so with that being said, I'm going to pray and we're going to jump into the text. Uh, Lord, you are very good and you are worthy of our worship. Uh, we ask this morning 
as we jump into the text that you uh, would teach us what it means to cry out for you, Jesus, with right belief and with a right posture of heart. I pray that this morning you would open the eyes of our spirits in the same way that you open the eyes of the blind man. Um, I pray that any amount of pride that we have this morning would be crushed so that we might know you in full. Um, Spirit, would you help me uh, this morning as I preach? Would you give me uh, clarity? And, and would you use me for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in, in Matthew 20, starting in verse 29, it says, And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And so first we need to kind of set up the scene. Why are they going out of Jericho? Why is a great crowd following him? Well, as we've been walking through Matthew, uh, what we've seen is that, that the author Matthew has been trying to make one point exceedingly clear throughout the gospel. And that is that Jesus is the son of David, or that he is, in other words, the messianic king that the Jewish people have been waiting for for generations and generations and generations. And at this point, over the last three chapters in Matthew, Jesus has been teaching about this new kingdom or new community that he's come to establish. And, and it's a really um, backwards idea of what these people thought the messianic kingdom would, would look like. It's a kingdom in which Jesus says the last will be first. Um, it's a kingdom in which honor is in serving others, um, where true wealth is found in generosity. And, and so this is not the kingdom that people expected, but all these people are following Jesus out of Jericho, and what they're doing is Jericho is kind of a major thoroughway on the way to Jerusalem. And it's, it's a couple days before the beginning of the week to celebrate Passover, and so all of these people, you can imagine hundreds of people traveling to Jerusalem for the celebration of Passover. And if you're not familiar with that, um, Passover is this annual celebration in which the people of Israel would be reminded of how God saved them out of slavery in Egypt through the shed blood of the Passover lamb. And so it's this incredibly important time, and they're following this, this man who many people are calling the Messianic king into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and there's this level of excitement and curiosity and what is going to happen when we get to Jerusalem following Jesus. And as they go along, it says, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So we see here in the, in the text two groups of people clearly described. First, we have the blind men. And, and, and the blind men, the first thing that we notice is that they're, they're clearly outsiders. They're sitting outside the gates of the city. Um, it, it shows that they've probably been there for a long time. And they're, they're crying out for help. Uh, but these are social outcasts. Uh, they're social outcasts because in, in this time and among the Jewish people, blindness was so often associated with either the sin from a generation before or with the sin of the present. Blindness was 
the just desserts of wrongdoing. And so as they're crying out for help, the crowd rebukes them. And they tell them to be quiet. Why? Because the crowd believes that you have gotten what you deserved. Don't don't bother this man. You've, You've earned your blindness. You deserve your situation. But what we see is the blind men call Jesus and they say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And so there's two key ways in which they address Jesus. They address him first as Lord showing that they believe that Jesus is in some way their master, that he's superior, that they have probably never encountered him before. They've only heard about him. But as he walks by, they're saying, you are our Lord. And then they call him son of David. And so they're saying, not only are you our Lord, but we believe that you are the messianic king. You are the anointed one who's been promised to us. You're the one who's going to come and establish this new kingdom. But the crowd, they serve as a roadblock, and they they try to prevent the outsiders from becoming insiders. And and the reasons could be very many. Um, Maybe they just really thought the blind men got what they deserved. Maybe they were just annoyed by these guys yelling out in the crowd. Maybe they were too focused on the task at hand of we are on our way to Jerusalem with this man and we just can't wait to see what happens. Or maybe they had been following Jesus for so long that they had been insiders for so long that they forgot that at one time they weren't following Jesus. They forgot that at one time they were also outsiders that became followers. And with all of that, Jesus does probably what was very unexpected to these people who thought blindness was a result of sin. It was probably unexpected even though earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus had helped and healed a blind man. Verse 32 says, And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? This is not Jesus not knowing what they want. If we read through the Gospels, we know that Jesus always knew the intent and the desire of those speaking to him. There are texts that that Pharisees are thinking in another corner, and and the Bible says, and Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, responded. So when these men are crying out, Lord, have mercy on a son of David, their request is not a mystery to Jesus. Jesus knows exactly what they want, but I don't think that we do. I think it is easy when we read this text to think that what the blind men want is physical sight, and and I'm going to argue that what they wanted was much more than physical sight. They wanted spiritual healing and salvation along with their physical healing and salvation. They wanted Jesus to give them sight, not only because they needed their sight, but because they want to be part of a messianic kingdom in which the blind receive their sight. If we go back to the the writings of the prophets, promising about when this messianic kingdom arrives, Isaiah, in multiple accounts, will say that, that a sure sign that the Messiah has come and that this new kingdom is established is that the blind receive their sight. 
And these are men who are crying out to Jesus, calling him the son of David. They're saying, what they're saying is, Lord, if you are the Messiah, if you truly are the Messiah, which we think you are, you will restore our sight. And then we'll know that this kingdom has arrived. Then we'll know that we have been made outsiders into this new kingdom in which the people of Israel are liberated and in which they have hope in a king. They're not just asking so that they can see. And Jesus asking the question is not because it's a mystery to him. It's not because he was frustrated that he was bothered. This isn't a, what do you want from me? No, this is Jesus stopping and turning and saying, what do you want from me? The question that Jesus asks is an act of grace. Because we know that Ephesians 2 teaches us that salvation comes through faith. But we also know that faith comes from hearing. In Romans 10, 17, when Paul writes, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So by the very audible word of Christ, the blind men hear the word of Christ, and this is something that provokes them to a profession of faith. Jesus asking the question, what do you want, is an act of grace toward these blind men. What do you want for me to do for you, he says. And the blind men hear the voice of Jesus, and it draws them to a profession of faith. faith. When they answer, it says, they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. See, originally their cry was, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. But now when asked the question, what do you want from me? They don't simply ask with a beggar's cry for mercy. They don't in fear decide that they're not going to ask for what they truly want and just ask for maybe some, some money to be helped as beggars on the side of the road. No, they cry out, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And this is not, this is not just a request for sight in the physical. It's a request for salvation. It's a request that they would be made insiders in this new messianic kingdom that they believe Jesus is the king of. And if that's not something they believed, they wouldn't have said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Jesus knew that these men knew that the prophets had promised that the blind would receive their sight when the messianic kingdom arrives. Jesus knew that these were social outcasts in need of some sort of salvation to become insiders. And so they ask for the full extent of Jesus' grace. Because if they really believe that Jesus is the messianic king, if they truly believe he is the savior for the nation of Israel, simply asking for physical sight is a very small request. But that's not what they do. They say, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And then in verse 34, it says, And Jesus, in pity touched their eyes. And first I'll say that the word eyes in verse 33 is a different word than the word eyes in verse 34. In the Greek, the word in, the, in verse 34 is a word that only means the physical eyes, the organs that see. 
But in verse 33, when they say, let our eyes be open, this is a word that can mean the physical eyes, but it also is a word that's used in sayings like the eyes of our hearts. It's this eyes of knowing. Let, let the full extent of our heart's knowledge be opened, they request. And Jesus responds with pity. And pity is a word that means compassion. This simply means that Jesus had a heart for them. But pity is a word that I think often we don't want to be any part of. Because pity is a word that implies a superior and inferior relationship. For someone to have pity on another means that the one having pity sees the other as an inferior. Or to be pitied means to make yourself inferior. And this really rubs against us. It really rubs against Western post-enlightenment thinkers like ourselves. We want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. If we're blind, we want to find the cure on our own. Or, or we, won't, we won't look to see our sight. We'll look to be the most able blind people possible. We're so proud that we wouldn't want anyone to have pity on us and heal us. We'll just figure out how to be the most able blind people possible. But these blind men knew that so much more was at stake than their sight. And so they made themselves to be pitiful so that the God of the universe in the flesh as the messianic king would bend down to them, touch their eyes, and have pity on them. He responds with pity, and they receive their sight, and they follow him. But can you imagine this moment? When, when all of their lives, these blind men have heard about this coming of a kingdom in which there would be this Messiah king, and, and when he came to reign, the blind would receive their sight. And there are so many other promises that come with the messianic kingdom, but can you imagine growing up blind and knowing that when this king comes, the blind receive their sight? That from my particular situation of being an outsider, of being excluded, of being rejected, that my particular station will be restored when this Messiah King comes. Not to mention all of the difficulties that come with the physical handicap of blindness. And finally, they have their chance. They have this man who they're willing to put their hope in, who they really believe might be the one. And with his question of saying, what do you want me to do for you? They know that he is. They know that he is because there's this communication that's happening where Jesus is saying, I know exactly what you're asking for. Just say the word. Just say the word that you want your eyes to be open. And can you imagine all of your life having been blind and knowing of this kingdom that would come where the blind receive their sight that almost seems like a myth, a far-off promise, something that can't be touched. And, and sitting on the ground and the very figure that was promised to you in your childhood, bending down, touching you, and the first thing you see in your whole life is the very Messiah who has brought about this kingdom. And it's not just that they can see for the first time and they see the healer of their sight, the healer of their blindness, but it's they can see the first time and they can see the very king who has included them in his kingdom. The very king who in grace stopped among the crowds who were ooing and awing over him. 
who were giving him glory and fame. And he stopped, even in the midst of their rebukes, and he turned to them and he had pity on them. So I think the question that this text begs us to answer is, are we like the blind men or are we like the people in the crowd? While the blind men know that they're desperate and know that they're outsiders and know that Jesus is Lord who can have mercy, that he is this king and he's their only hope and they beg for it persistently, urgently, without ceasing. Even when people scoff and reject them and tell them they got exactly what they deserve, they continue begging. Or are we like the crowd who are marked by arrogance? The crowd has right belief. They would say that Jesus is the son of David, but they have the wrong posture because they have the son of David, but they don't cry, Lord, have mercy. Are we like the crowd in that we're a roadblock to outsiders? Are we preventing people from experiencing the inclusion and the grace of God in any way? And let's stop here for a minute because this can both be a sin of commission, one that we actively do. This can be active um, frustration, rejection, denial of people who are outsiders, whether it's socially, whether it's the poor, the immigrant, the refugee, whether it's physically, people who look differently than us, people with handicaps, people older or younger than us. Or maybe it's spiritually. Maybe we just actively are frustrated and have a hatred and a judgment toward the non-believer who walks in sin. And that is to very much be like the crowd. But to be like the crowd and being a roadblock to outsiders can also be a sin of omission. Do you fail to engage with your coworkers, friends, neighbors who are outsiders of the faith because it's inconvenient? If so, you're not just not being an evangelist, you're actively preventing them from experiencing the grace of God. The sin is truly no different. For some of us, we've been following Jesus so long that we forgot that at one point we were outsiders. We forgot that at one point we were pitiful, begged for the mercy of the Lord, and he gave it to us. And now we think it's something that's owed to us. Now we think our place in the kingdom is a station that we've always had, that we always will have, and that our behavior shows that we deserve it. And the people on the outside, they deserve what they're getting. And it's not that the people on the outside deserve what you have, it's that you deserve what the people on the outside have. Because as Christians, we believe that those who are apart from Christ will experience the wrath and judgment of God. And it is right. It is right that, that people who walk in sin and reject Christ as Lord deserve that. But you also deserve it. And it's only because the Lord Jesus turned and had pity on you and opened your eyes to see how good he was that you're not going to get it. So are you a roadblock to outsiders like the crowd? Ultimately, the crowd is marked by lukewarmness. And lukewarmness, um, this is something that the scriptures speak harshly about. 
the Lord Jesus says to John the Revelator in a letter to the church at Laodicea in Revelation in chapter 3. This is what the Lord Jesus says of lukewarmness. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And then the Lord goes on to say, but I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness and salve to anoint your eyes that you might see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The Lord has serious words for the lukewarm church, for the church that begins to think that their station in the kingdom of heaven is something that's owed to them. The, the church that forgets that at one time they were outsiders, made insiders by the grace of Jesus. So the call of this text is to recognize that we do not in ourselves have all that we need to be truly free and to experience the glory of being part of Jesus' kingdom. So we should repent. And we should come to him persistently in humility, begging him to have mercy for us all the more. This is why we take communion every week. We take communion every week so that we can every week come to the table and cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. Apart from you, I'm wretched. Apart from you, I'm to be pitied. Apart from you, I can't see a thing. I'm shameful in my nakedness apart from you. But we come to the table and we partake in the grace of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus so that we can remember and experience his presence in that. Some of us have become like the crowd. We've relied on our position within the church as the seal of a promise that we will be part of Jesus' kingdom. But that is not the seal of a promise. The seal of the promise, as Ephesians would say, is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit which is given to those who are saved by faith in Jesus, those who put their hope in Jesus, those who are willing to be pitied and cry out for mercy. Being an active member in your neighborhood parish and bringing food every Wednesday is not what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. It's a result of being part of the kingdom of God, but that's not what it means. What it means to be part of the kingdom of God is to regularly know that apart from Christ, we are nothing. That's why we sing, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Because in the kingdom of God, in this new kingdom that Jesus has established, everything is upside down. To be wealthy is to only have Christ not to have Christ and a lot of other things. To have sight is to only have our eyes on Christ. As we saw that last week, that when Peter took his eyes off Christ for a second, he began to sink. 
To be part of the kingdom is to be an outsider that's been made an insider. But how did that happen? How was it that Jesus could make these blind men insiders when they were outcasts? Well, I think it's, it's very clear in this text. Um, just in physical things that we can look at, we can see the grace of God. The blind men are sitting outside the gates of the city, showing that they've been rejected by the people of Jericho. They're physically marred. Their eyes can't even see. They're alone. They found themselves just alone and rejected. They're mocked by the crowd. The crowd comes by and rebukes them for what they've said. They're considered unworthy. But they're made insiders because a week later, Jesus would himself go outside the city gates of Jerusalem with a cross. He would be physically marred, far worse than they were. He would be alone, hanging before a crowd that mocked him. It's the irony of the fact that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, followed by a huge crowd, and a week later he would exit Jerusalem dead on a wooden crossbeam, and nobody would be with him then. But he was rejected so that outsiders could be made insiders. He took on the very station of the blind men so that he could heal them of their blindness, and not just physically, but spiritually. He would conquer death and the lot of the outsider in resurrection. And he's our only hope. So maybe you have been going through for even years calling Jesus rightly the son of David. You've said the right things about Jesus. But maybe you've forgotten the Lord have mercy on you. This morning is an opportunity to be zealous and repent to not be lukewarm, but to be hot and on fire for the grace of the Lord Jesus. Maybe this morning you would consider yourself even among the outsiders still. Maybe you felt rejected spiritually, socially, physically. And know that as you cry out, even in a crowd that would reject you, that the Lord Jesus will hear you. He will turn to you. He will ask you what you want. And all you have to say is, Lord, that my eyes would be open. And he'll have pity on you. And he'll give you your sight. And in either one of those situations, what we have to realize is, just like I was in the alley in need of help outside of what I could establish for myself, in need of a situation where I had to make myself pitiable so that there could be grace for me, that is the call for the church. So this morning... Do not come to the communion table without the cry of, Lord, have mercy on me. Without understanding the depth of the inclusion that has been made for you through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And if you've never come to the table, if you've never cried that out, this morning is a chance. Because the Lord will hear your cry and he will respond with pity. He's become an outsider so that you can become an insider. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David, King of heaven, 
God of grace. I pray that Sojourn Montrose would not be a church marked by lukewarmness, but we would be a church marked by inviting the outsider to experience what we've experienced through becoming insiders through you, Jesus. I pray that our only hope would be you, Lord Jesus, not what we've done, not our station, physically, socially, economically. Pray that we wouldn't rely on being part of the church as our means to salvation, but that we would rely on you to give us hope as a church. Lord, I pray by your spirit that you would draw us to you this morning. Some of us for the very first time, I pray that that there would be people in this room who have never trusted in you, but that would know that you're good. And that they would cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. Knowing that you will stop, bend down, touch them intimately, and give them their sight. You're good and we worship you. Amen.